0: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
1: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
0: Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack You have me, and as you can already hear, our guest is in the room I don't really think we need to introduce our guest, but I'm going to let Chris do it anyway Chris, who have we got on today?
1: Yeah, seeing as I bloody wrote it, I might as well read it (laughs) So uh, we have uh, Peter Hart, who, if you don't know, is a legend in the field of military history And he's written countless books, he'll probably try and sell you one Mostly (laughs) in the first and second world war my favorite one being Death in the Grey Wastes, but there's also, there's a uh, Burning Steel, a tank regiment at war in 1939 to 45, a close range, the life and death of an artillery regiment. And he's here today to talk to us about his newest book, Foot Sloggers, an infantry battalion at war, 1939 to 45. Morning, Pete. How are you doing? I'm
2: doing well. I've, I've cleared my throat. I'm ready for action, ready for anything you can throw at me, unless it's a question of detail or demanding knowledge of statistics. <laughs> so I, i've got
0: a question chris did you just list off the books that you thought would get you in with peter at all like you know suck up to him a little bit
1: no no i mean uh for two reasons one uh gray waste is awesome because it's jutland um the oh. other two were the new were the newest ones and um pete hates me already so there's no way i can suck up Hate <laughs> <laughs> he's lovely lovely it's although i noticed
0: it? you, you wrote adorable. a boaty book.
2: I, I, I like boaty things. Uh, I, I did naval history at university. Uh, well, medieval and modern, but all the last year was naval history. And uh, Jutland's probably my favourite book. The mm-hmm. Death in the Grey Wastes is the subtitle, which was my idea of a joke, which, uh, once again, yes. as so many of my jokes do, <laughs> got <laughs> taken seriously. So <laughs> that book is now known as Death in the Grey Wastes, to people who've got complete no brain whatsoever. Hi, Chris. Hello. <laughs> I'm, I'm leaving, I used to work uh, with Chris.
0: I'm leaving the chat, by the way. I'll leave you two to talk about naval things.
2: Are you Are in having a little snoozer.
0: No, I'm not going <laughs> to. I've, I've done two of snooze. these
2: podcasts before and both times Alina fell asleep. I am that interested in <laughs> a guest <guestlessness>. listener. <laughs> Even the bloody presenter couldn't be bothered to stay awake. So God help you. <laughs> well, Boring, Pete. <laughs> they call me.
0: <laughs> well, okay, so enlighten me a little bit then. Why have you suddenly switched? Because all I know you for is World War One chisel, right? That that's what you do for me in my brain. I think
2: you'll find it's called the Great War amongst the Caucasians. <laughs> <laughs>
0: okay, the great that one, the first one, yeah. the first one, <laughs> right? So, <clears throat> so again. So you're usually working on the first. Why have you? Coming to you know the Second World
2: War. Well, the, there are two reasons. Uh, the first is that um, uh, the um, the centenary celebrations destroyed the but the market for First World War books. There were too many came out. Uh, and most of the sales were sucked up by, uh, non-First World War historians writing garbage. You can put your own names to those people if you like. I'm not going to because, you know, they might review my books at some time in the future. Now you're swaying from side to side. It's some sort of yogic thing. <laughs> it's very distracting. Anyway, um, uh, so, uh, so that's one reason. Uh, basically the publishers don't, don't want ex, you see, my books are expensive, uh, in the sense that, I get a, a proper advance, not what we call a pen and sword or a, a hellion advance. Um, so they need to sell a certain amount of books and they didn't think they could do it. They, I'm not a big enough name. Uh, I'm not a, a, a newscaster or something, you know, or a comedian. Uh, although my, my Polly says, I think I'm a comedian. You think you're funny, do you? She says to me on many occasions. <laughs> um, so, so that was one reason, the changing market. The other reason is that. Although I did do a lot of interviews and work on the Great War, my job at the War Museum for you know I was there 39 years. Thirty of those years I was working on the Second World War, and uh, and therefore, although I'm not an expert on the Second World War at all, um, I do I do uh, have uh, an interest in the, the 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 men who fought it. And my books on the Second World War are not campaign histories; they are about the men. And that's what they're all about. Uh, Because that's what interests me, the similarities with the Great War veterans. And I'm doing the Sudan now. uh, The similarities for the people in the 1880s, 1890s. Soldiers don't change. And, of course, in my last five years, I moved on to doing Afghan and Iraq, and soldiers haven't changed still. They're still just the same hairy-ass people,
1: except for the women's soldiers. They're not so
0: hairy-ass. I bloody hope not.
1: (laughs) So... Foot sloggers is different from other archival, sound archival based research, isn't it? Um, uh, um, um, I don't know. Uh, what, what it, it's different from a lot of regimental
2: histories because in that it really does rely on, on oral history, uh, and the, uh, the, the, the very few, uh, personal experience accounts I've found. Um, what, 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 what's interesting about the oral history is, uh, a lot of oral history, done by authors trying to make a quick buck is just, uh, you know, 20 minute, 30 minute, an hour interviews. And they're fundamentally there. What's the most exciting thing that ever happened to you, Chris, other than working at the Imperial War Museum. Uh, and uh, that sort of question just gets the old war stories out our approach, because I wasn't doing it to write a book. I was doing it to create the collection for the Imperial War Museum on an infantry regiment, a battalion, uh, that that the approach was very different. So the approach was uh, the interview was as long as it took, and we do it in two hour sessions, and and a lot of them are uh, fifteen hours long, um, and it's not all about the Durham. So a lot of it's basic training or the life before the war, and 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 so the interviews are much more detailed, and most of all, it's not based on the Bloody Padre's diary because so many books that I read. <laughs> They seem to be based on the Padre's sodding diary. Who cares what the Padre thinks? Who cares about the Padre? They're a bloody laughing stock in the army anyway. Uh to some people, sorry. And other people find them really useful. <laughs> you know what? Burying them when they're dead. It's very handy. So um so so that's that, that's the nature of the book. Um I, I think that the difference is the level of detail which is caused by the level of detail within the interviews uh and also the trusting relationship i had with the informants because the interviews weren't done by someone else as they often are in these books they were done by me uh or people i'd trained or part of our collective so there were only about three of us Uh, uh harry moses uh who and his son michael moses did a good half of the interviews and i did the rest um and um uh, th- that gives it a consistency and, uh, we all are all using the same, uh, questionnaire, the same approach, the same ideas. Uh, so the material has an, an, an internal consistency that, 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 you know, across the thing. And what's interesting is you can see that some people are out of line and it's the same as anything. If you, if you look at, uh, say, say the great war group, you've got lots and lots of sensible people like me and Gary. And then out on the wing, you've got some absolute loonies, you know uh like Alex, uh and uh they uh they stand out, you know, in the crowd. Um and the question is, as an oral historian, if if they're de- if people are describing the same action, who's right? And the balance of probability is it will be the ones that most people agree without having shown obvious signs of reading almost from a scr- a mental script. But sometimes you know the person on the wing, the what we call the Alex figure is the right one and they're the ones who actually say what really happened. Uh, so as with everything you can't tell for instance chris said that he slept on a settee last night you and i don't actually know he slept on the settee last night do we no um and, and that's the but on the other hand if he wrote an official report about it would we know any better if it wrote it in a diary would we know any better and this is the thing about history. It's one of the most interesting things about history. I told you I talk too much, by the way. It's one of the most imp- interesting things is we can never really, really know. All you can get is a balance of probability. And it's the historian's job to, to chart their way through. Now, some people will entirely go with the ones who are extreme in order to make it more sexy and attractive. Not that Alex is sexy or attractive, obviously. But... um yeah, they'll go absolutely mad for the, for that for that stuff. Do you see what I mean? But in actual fact, that 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 usually it's just the ones that most people say. If most, for instance, if they're talking about the same officer, if they all say "What a bastard," <laughs> and he himself, who we interview, says, "I was lovely, and the men all loved me." Which do you think's right there? <laughs> and the answer is that the bulk of the men who serve with him will be right um on the other hand he might say well yes i was a bit of a bastard to them but i had to be i had to get them to do these things they didn't want to do and i had to you know i had to use my ncos i had to bully them i had to get them in line i had to make them do things they didn't want to do and that's 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 all. It's all part of this making a judgment call. Anyway, I've rabbited on for hours now. Is it nearly the end of the podcast?
0: No, I actually want to bring up a point that, that right. you bring also up. To what extent
2: accidentally is... insulted Alex.
0: No, it's fine. Don't worry. We can insult Alex. It's fine. She might not even listen to this or we'll, we'll be all right. But you bring up a really valid point because I suffer with that same issue that you've got one, uh, for example, my testimony and Auschwitz stuff, you've got one prisoner that says one thing, one prisoner that says another. And the one thing that we've been fighting about really specifically is the speech that was given when they arrived, especially for the early days where they referenced the crematoria. Now, the crematoria didn't exist in June of 1940, didn't until August. So where did the prisoners get that there was a crematoria and that's how they're going to leave us through the chimney if there was no crematoria at the time? Where half of them say yes and half of them say no?
2: Uh, Well, I I did the Great War, uh, you may or may not, I started the Great War uh, Jewish interviewing uh, for the concentration camp. things. I couldn't do them myself because they were too upsetting. Uh, uh, And uh, I'm a cheery cove and uh, I didn't want to. I didn't want to do it. Uh, I did catalogue some of it and didn't like that either. Uh, but the balance of probability is if the crematorium wasn't there, they can't have been had it mentioned in the first thing. So the historians just have to say, look, I don't care that they all thought that. They've all talked to each other. They've all, uh, they've, they've heard countless times and they've read the books that the, that this was in the opening speech. And so they parrot it. Now that isn't that they're lying. And and one thing you have to realise with oral history is when people tell you the wrong thing, they're not lying; they're getting it wrong. Like Chris probably went to bed last night. He didn't, Steve. He's just, you know, just got it wrong because he's getting to that age now where he makes mistakes. His All the marriage, time. his marriage was one. I think. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers. <laughs> <laughs> no more questions, Chris. No, it's fair. He-
0: You've broke, Chris, I think. (laughs) Maybe we
2: should... His watch has gone up enough times. (laughs) Yeah, let's talk about Durham.
1: Sorry.
0: Come on, Chris. (laughs) You're hilarious. Talk about
2: your
1: marriage. (laughs) Where (laughs) are we? That's a totally different podcast. (laughs) Um, Isn't that the true crime one that uh, Alina likes?
0: Oh, yeah, that's the true crime one, Chris, isn't it? (laughs)
1: I uh, <clears> haven't <throat> killed her. She's still alive, sadly. Um. Anyway, so uh, the Durham's uh, <laughs> yeah. who was who were the 16th Battalion of the Durham's? They, did they have a like a strong military pedigree before the Second World War? No,
2: and I think it's fair to say that the Durham Light Infantry are a respected infantry unit, and uh, that and, and and I'm sorry, I'm taking from that that they're not respected uh everybody bangs on about tank regiments and they bang on about the guards and the rest of it and they bang on about the rifles you know the the, the elite infantry the durhams are very much foot sloggers they're very much the people who have to do the grunt work uh i i admire them absolutely enormously um so the regiment as a, as a, as per se is not that famous in that way, Uh, although I think they raised as many regiments as any uh, battalions as anybody did in the First World War, and had a tremendous fighting record in the First World War, in my view. Um, The... um, the the 16th, who are they? Well, they're a Dunkirk battalion and, and you may or may not know what a Dunkirk battalion is. I I keep having to check what it is. There were 60 Dunkirk battalions raised, uh, in the aftermath of, uh, of the, um, uh, the, the Dunkirk Farago. uh, uh, and, uh, uh, the, what they were, they, they're basically made up of conscripts. Uh, and they're soaking up the huge numbers that were called up in 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 that year um uh, and only one of them actually went into action as a battalion and that was the 16th DLI. it wasn't because they were better it was because they were um they 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 were put into 46 division to, uh, to replace somebody else and 46 division went to, to war so they went with them um it it it's um it, it's amazing and it's so when they start and, and I, I in a way i'm as interested in non-fighting as fighting when they start they're just in a field in edinburgh <laughs> outside edinburgh and they're just, you know they've got no they've got to put the tents up they've got they've got trees all over the field that they, it's muddy it's scotland so it's raining and surrounded by utterly miserable people and it it's just just so awful <laughs> And and I, I I sort of like that bit of the book, and I like that you know. Then they move on to other places in Scotland, and and the welcome becomes better as they and and their training kicks in. Training is important. That's why books about the the, the uh, a battalion must cover or or a tank regiment or art- artillery have to cover the training because if you don't understand the training and you'll understand this Chris, from shippy things at war. If you don't understand how the training has got, you know, what they've learned and what they haven't learned, you don't understand how they perform at war. So the training is an inter- integral part of the book. Not sure I can say integral at this stage in the morning, but there you go. forgotten what you asked me now.
0: <laughs> 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 well, the question was that they have a great military ped- pedigree, which you're more oh, interested like well,
2: in. I've, I've answered that. I've, I've, I just, driven, yeah. The, uh, the, so, no. And, uh, you know, you, I think the numbers are a clue, isn't it? Sixteenth. You know, it's Pretty low. <laughs> High, rather.
0: I'm going to agree and say I totally understand what you meant there.
2: Well, there's the 1st and 2nd regular battalions. The 3rd is usually the reserve. And then there's 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th, ninth, the territorial. And, and then they go on to the service battalions. That's in the 1st World War. You'll notice I'm drifting back to the 1st World War
1: for security. I am not a 2nd World War person.
0: Chris, did you want to jump in with a comment there?
1: Um... No, I kind of float between the two, but um, because not much changes in boats. No, no, <laughs> it doesn't. Except when the bottom <laughs> blows out. Yes, <laughs> battle cruisers still blow up. That's all I've got yeah. from World War One to two. So, where are we now? What should we what should we we're talk we're, about
2: now?
0: We're, we're moving on. We're moving on because I know we could sit on one question probably for a whole forty five minutes, but they uh they end up in North Africa, don't they? They what do. Were, what were their experiences like there?
2: Well, it's the usual. We call it the Battle of the <laughs> First War again. It's the, ba- the the pre-battle of the Somme experience. They all, you know, they go to the Western Front and they're learning that that they go to North Africa and um, they're learning their trade and there's a, you know it's it's it, they're sort of getting used to the rations. And I find all, I'm always interested in rations. They're setting up the the B-echelon, the rest of it, and they go to a place called Sedjenane. Uh, it's, it's a railway town, a uh, little it's more a village than a town. Uh, and, uh, and then suddenly you'd never guess what the Germans attack absolute buggers and, and, and the Germans attack, uh, and, um, and the battle that follows is in two parts. And the first day, which around about the 27th of February, I, I'm actually vague on dates, 1943. Uh, they've had four years of training at this point, uh, three years, uh, uh, and, and, and the first battle is not successful. Uh, and a lot of the units cut up, but then, on the second of March there's a second attack, a counterattack by the by, by the Durhamite infantry. And that's an absolute slaughter. The the regiment is cut to ribbons. The battalion is cut to ribbons. Uh the stories from that day are are, are full of uh loads of prisoner of war people who then, in the oral history, go off for another 20 reels of being prisoner. So I don't have to listen to that. But, uh they're, yeah, they're, they're, they're taken prisoner. And the Germans nearly always say the traditional, for you, Tommy, the fight is over. <laughs> you know, which is because Germans are so nice sometimes. They're nice now. And, uh, so, the, and then after that in North Africa, they're basically, there's so many few left and they're rebuilding all the time. They're used as a, a reserve units that are attached to other brigades whenever there's an attack and they basically hold, uh, hold the baseline. So they don't go much into attack for the rest of So it's a, a fairly quiet period, uh, uh, before they, 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 they burst back into action, uh, when they go into uh, Italy. Uh, so it's a terrible opening experience for them. And, uh, it, it's, it's heartrending. Some of the stories, um, that, that, that you hear or you can read if you buy the book. Book's cheap at the moment, by the way. <laughs> Is
0: it on sale? Uh,
2: it's on sale with Amazon. Oh, well, I'm not supposed to mention things like that. I don't know. Oh, you're not the BBC. It's on sale at Amazon
1: at the moment.
0: Chris might get angry.
1: No, yeah. I'm fine. Yeah. I'm- you can also buy my book it's been eight year out for eight years now you fabulous i recommend it um but uh thank you uh but uh talking about italy they, they do they go through sicily and then into salerno don't they
2: they, they don't fight at sicily but they do yes go through sicily nothing much happens there uh, they just, yeah, they uh, but they go in at salerno and uh, and and the biggest and most exciting bit for that for that for me is they're not in the first wave ashore they're uh, they come ashore quite you know, late quite later on the hampshire's go ashore first to hampshire again. but what happens then is they go up onto a place called hospital hill Wow. Wow. And then guess what happens, Chris? You'll never guess what happens when they're up on Hospital Hill. The Germans counterattack. This is unprecedented for the Germans to counterattack. And, and, and the, 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 the Durhams have done it again. One of the things that said your name was all the company commanders and the, and the colonel had gone off on a recce. For the next move, when they were attacked, and on on Hospital Hill, they thought we mustn't do this ever again. We really mustn't do it anyway. Hospital Hill, all the company commanders and NCOs were having a briefing when the Germans attacked. So absolute chaos, and and there's a sort of uh, every man attack up the hill, led by the officers and NCOs who were in the, this hut being briefed, and and they managed to retake the the hill. And it's it again, it's frenetic fighting. It, it's uh, is it exciting? Well. Exciting's a wrong word for things where people are getting killed and wounded and mentally traumatised, but you can't help but admire what they're doing. And uh, and of course, the Germans are, are, are such tough opposition because uh, e- everything you want to say about British soldiers, you can say about German soldiers in the sense of their courage and uh, determination, fighting to the end if they want. But uh, in the Germans' case, more often retreating and then coming back in a counterattack. What next? you'll be saying
0: there's there's a lot of things because you have the battle of my god i can't pronounce this
2: that- oh well let, let me take you quickly through what happens there they then have a couple of river crossings the volturno and the tiano the volturno is particularly uh exciting in the book because the people going across first are making a, a covert approach. And uh, somebody falls in the water and starts shouting, Ah, help, I'm drowning. <laughs> Germans wake up and all start shooting. That's quite exciting. And all of the Germans point out he was a cockney. And as you know, everyone from the north of England refers to everyone from uh, London, not just the one born within the sands of Bow Bells. Every Northerner, including me, refer to all Londoners as cocky wankers. And I want everyone who's considering to buy the book from London to realise that's what I think of you secretly, or well, not secretly now. But so that's an amusing answer. But Then they fight on. Uh, there's a terrible battle at Monte Camino. This isn't in the notes I sent you, of course, uh, where they're they're, they're alongside uh, Monte Camino in front to Monte Cassino, terrible battle, slogging their way up this god-awful mountain, bloody hell. And then at last, they have a bit of a rest. They're sent to the Middle East where they uh, as you know, the Middle East is always a peaceful and calm area where nothing ever goes wrong. So they're uh, they're trying to stop the Arabs and Jewish population from killing each other. Um, and uh, doing a bit more training, then they go back to Italy, put back on the other side the Adriatic side, and then begins a series of battles through the Gothic line and through every other bloody line the germans uh, uh, put up and they there's just it 's just river valley river valley, river valley, river valley. Ridge, river, valley, ridge, river, valley, ridge, 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 valley, ridge, valley, ridge, valley, ridge, valley, valley ridge, 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 bloody valley, bloody ridge, bloody, and they get so fed up, because every time the Germans are on the ridge in front of the sodding valley, and um, every time, and, and in almost every battle, the Germans just, there's no denouement, because the Germans fight, kill, fight, kill, and then when it's getting tough, they fall back to the next ridge. And it's, it's a murderous business. Uh, and that, that, the, the battle you're thinking of is the Battle of Balignano Ridge. I can't say it either, but that's how I say it. And I'm the historian, so everybody believes me. Uh, the Italians Balignano. probably say well, um, Bal- Bal- Balignano Spur or Ridge. And, and that's, uh, a fantastically ex, it, it's just, it's just amazing. And what we've got in that account, I'm not going to go through it in too much detail because we've already used half our three quarters of our time. Um, what I like about the, the accounts there is I have B company ordered to do it. A chap called Laurie Stringer, Major Laurie Stringer, who I interviewed. We interviewed all the company commanders. They were still alive. They're all dead now. And uh, he decides to go straight up the spur, uh, up, up, up the road. It's a frontal attack. It's not his decision, sorry, it's the Colonel's decision. Major Dennis Warrell. Oh, they're gonna go. And it, it's a frontal attack. And he sends another chap down as Lieutenant Russell, or Winkler, because he's so successful at winkling the Germans out of various defended positions, round to the right. And and they go up this hill, and all hell bloody breaks loose. Uh and and we go through all the command decisions made by Laurie Stringer uh so you know he's going up the hill under heavy fire so what does he do uh he sends a a, a group out to a, a attack uh, um uh um a machine gun he thinks it's on the right turns out it's on the left he he he, he brings down artillery fire in support he's doing this that and the other meanwhile poor old Laura, Laura, uh, russell collins is attacking up towards the church round, swinging round very little opposition uh, but the, in the middle, it's just gets more and more murderous. And, uh, do you want me to read a couple of quotes or not? I've got one or two Perfect. I can pick out. Okay. <clears throat> This is what Laurie Stringer says of B Company. We were under small arms fire and Neville terrifying high-trajectory mortars which the Germans had recently brought out. They made a whizzing, terrific, terrifying noise, and their explosive fire was quite substantial. They were on the reverse slope, and they were coming right over. I say this with very great... Humility. When you're leading men in action, you cease to be concerned about yourself and you are worried solely about your men. To say that I wasn't frightened would be an exaggeration. No human being would be like that in that set of circumstances. But I didn't let it worry me because I was concerned about managing the men I had under command and trying to keep the casualty level, level as low as possible. The job had to be done and I was going to do it to the best of my ability. And, and I, I find that interesting because do you see what i mean that's the way he thought and and i believe him and and every sign of of it is that that's what he was like and then just to 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 go on the i like the integration of the next bit he orders uh uh this chap called lieutenant richard hewlett uh, also a b company to go and get this machine gun and uh and this is what, and, and and then the next two quotes give a fantastic, uh, there was a machine gun firing towards us from over on the right. Laurie Stringer said, for God's sake, take your men and go and silence that machine gun. He must have gone on, uh, still on the track as far as I knew. We had to climb up out of the sunken road onto the hill. We were all running, hopefully in the right direction. Uh, there didn't seem to be any way one could pr- approach it absolutely direct. The only cover of any sort was on the right. I was making for these small trees and bushes, getting the some cover to get up the bloody hill. I had difficulty in keeping my men together because there were vineyards on it with wires stretching out. People's small packs got caught in the wire. I love that small detail. That won't be in any regimental history. Do you see what I mean? And he goes on, I was concentrating on trying to help them to disentangle them, get them in a state where they could be firing their weapons. This slowed the progress down. but man. Uh, any infantry officer will tell you the most difficult thing in the world is to get your men to fire back once they get fired on. One well, is inclined to sort of freeze up, so you can't do anything. The only thing to do is to fire. It doesn't matter where you fire. Again, this is practical thing. And then he goes on and he gets hit, um, and he, he's really, really badly wounded. He's smashed. Uh, it goes through his knee joint. He is. It is shot a bit. And at this point, um, uh, Laurie String comes back into the story. Uh, because he rescues Dick Hewlett, and he says this, and this story is confirmed. Uh, he said this some way down. I almost kicked someone. I saw it was Dick Hewlett. I, I I stopped. I could see that part of his leg had been shot away. He was still conscious, and he said, "Leave me, sir. Leave me. Leave me. Leave me." I didn't leave him. I lifted him. I was strong then. I lifted him, put him, and put him on my shoulder. I shall never forget. The blood went. Right the way through my clothing, my vest, and onto my body as well. The Germans weren't coming down towards towards us, but they were firing from the top of the slope, a distance of about 50 or 60 yards. I carried him. He was screaming with pain. I carried him for about 50 yards, and he became too heavy. Fortunately, I happened to see my sergeant major, and there was an old Italian outhouse there, with a door. I put Dick Hewlett down on the ground. We lifted him onto this barn door and carried him back to the start line. And then a last quote, which, provides the humorous finish for me. And this is Hewlett. He says, I don't know how long it was before Major Stringer and Company Sergeant Major Clout came up. I might well have been unconscious. I can't remember if I said, leave me. Shock, I suppose. I must have been mad if I said that. Brilliant. I love it. And then he goes, they had difficulty carrying me because I was in such agony with any movement of my leg. Uh, they tied these legs together, blah, blah, blah. The only thing I remember then is getting to the regimental aid post where I was lying on a stretcher with the best intentions of the world, Padre Meek, that's what I said about Padres, poured scalding hot tea all over me as a blessing and a comfort. It was too hot. <laughs> it went all the way down my front. Now, those, those quotes just interact. And there are points, I mean, the bit about when Laurie, Stringer talks about the blood coming not only through his uniform and his vest, but onto his body. And you get the idea. And and the fact that, the, you know, Hewlett backs up his story. I, I I think, and that's what the book's about. That's what I want to do. I like, do you know a film where the the cameraman cuts from perspective to perspective to tell a story? And that's what I want the book to do. I want you to be in seeing the incident through different eyes and cutting between them so you get the whole story. Um, But there you go. Sorry, I blathered on
1: for hours there. (laughs) No, absolutely. I completely agree. I I do the same. I try and write the same way because I think the individual's experiences, because uh, like you said, with the official histories and the regimental histories, and then B Company went over the hill. There were 30 Germans. They overcame them by doing X, Y, Z. Having that individual, this is what we've done. Um, this is how I felt. This is, this is how, I how, I how I got injured. Makes it makes, makes it, that, it much that much more interesting. much
2: more interesting. I think th- absolutely, Chris. I, I entirely agree, and uh, that's why your books are so brilliant as well. Buy Chris <laughs> Sam's books available on Amazon today. Cheap. <laughs> <Thanks>. <laughs> what are they called, Chris? Remind me. Something Raiders.
1: <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, German Raiders of the First World War, and um oh, was the other one? Uh, it's on my book. Before. Uh, uh, flying into the Storm, British Bombers, 1939-42. <laughs> oh, I haven't read that one. I've read the other one. <laughs> As I said, Second World War not my it, thing. But it's, um, it's definitely a, a better way of, of, of telling the stories of, of the war, and I, I think that's... Um, something more historians need to do or should be do, should be doing
2: well as long as you don't believe everything everybody says it, it, it's it's well, what this yeah. point about we said earlier you're looking for the balance of truth as far as you can determine it from from the evidence you've got um and uh, you know um that there are times in oral history where you get somebody talking about being wounded and they get the wrong day they get the wrong date well you can correct that of course you can correct that. It's like, that's the example of the uh, Auschwitz thing, by the way, as well. Um, uh, you, you, you can correct mistakes. Um, not, not, not by changing what they put, but normally by omitting the things that they have wrong. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, but I mean, we, we were all in the pub together on uh, a couple of days ago. Uh, if we had uh, if we were all interviewed about that we'd get who arrived in what order wrong we'd get all sorts of things wrong and you've got to remember that when you're assessing the evidence and you do use uh, official diaries uh, as a framework to pour I, I call it pouring in like a mould you pour in the personal experience accounts and and often you can tell when the official diaries lie because official diaries uh, the, the war diaries are often just uh, to exculpate the people in charge this was a dis- the Thing the Balignano, Balignano, no, I can't say it. Balignano Spur is a disastrous plan produced by the Colonel. Uh, the war, war diary does not reflect what happened there uh, because the German counterattack bins them off, all of them off. Uh, the, the right hand group under Russell Collins has to retreat because the others have gone. Uh, the Germans retake the ridge and hold the ridge that night and then retire because the whole of the war is going on around. People forget. Your battalion, isn't it? There's other battalions on our left and right, and the Germans get isolated; they fall back, take up the next defensive position, and the the the, the whole story. And just to go on a little bit, uh, they then so they fight and fight and fight and fight and fight and fight up the right-hand side or eastern side, see posh historian uh, of Italy, Adriatic side. And then they pulled out of there and sent to Greece. Now that's really unusual. So they're involved in the, uh, the, uh, anti-ELAS fighting. And they start off very sympathetic because like a lot of soldiers there are then, not now so much, they were of the left wing persuasion. Um, and, uh, they, they were quite sympathetic towards ELAS, but, uh, they soon got persuaded the other way. And, uh, and there's quite some nasty incidents and in fighting. Uh, and then they call back to Italy. The war's over. And then in Austria, where they're the garrison troops, they are implicated up to their necks in both the return of the, um, the Croatians to, uh, to Tito, where they get slaughtered and the return of the Cossack brigade, uh, to the Russians, where they definitely got slaughtered. Uh, both of them are incredibly controversial things. And I've tried to, uh, I've tried to, uh, Point out how the men felt about it. They felt terrible about it, and I've also, uh, and Alina, you'll recognise the words, pointed out that they they were, after all, only obeying orders. So they didn't like it, but they still did it, and um, th- those two things are still controversial to this day. In the book, I I, I do bend round it as far as I can, but I have to point out that that is the case. They did do it. They were ordered to do it, and they did it. Uh, and it was a terrible business what went on in Austria, both the Croatians and the the Russian Cossack Brigade. Now, I'm not saying that they're, they're innocent people, because they're, I'm not sure that the Cossacks and the Croatians were innocent, but they certainly didn't deserve that. And then they're all demobilized and the battalion ceases to exist, and uh, that's it. Laurie Stringer writes a little tiny book, which is basically the war diary, and, um, and that was it until we started this project back in the uh, mid-'80s
0: bit of a sad ending really you they always are you'd think you'd be a little bit more fighting like for example some of the polish battalions when they get demobilized it's that's that's it thanks bye good luck see you later and you're like where is the help where is the support where is the uh, the aid and none none of it happens they just say thank you you're demobilized goodbye now
2: that's exactly what happens to the British. Uh, 16th Battalion is demobilized. There, there, there's, there's no bye bye parade. They are sent home as individuals. The, the, the demobilization system, uh, gradually there's less and less. They become company sized And then, uh, uh, I think Vizard's the last, uh, officer. He switches the lights off, closes the office door and goes home. And that's it. And th- they, um, they formed a regimental association because they felt that they needed to, Reflect and to join together. And, and, and the regimental association, it was still going strong. The, 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 uh, battalion association, as well as the regimental, there's two. Um, it was still going strong until, just like in, uh, Austria, one by one, they all die and finally the light's been switched off. I know of, I can't think of any of the DLI, uh, 16th battalion left alive. Um, Uh, Well, they'd be very old now. They're also northern working-class men, a lot of them, although they didn't remember the Second World War policy from the Somme, uh, the experiences of the Somme. They are from various parts of the country, so uh, they're about a third Geordies uh, from Durham and Northumberland and and two-thirds from other places. But they retained a Durham characteristic, all the jokes about, I can't hear. There's quite a few saying, I thought they were Polish. <laughs> so, <laughs> I just heard this gobbledygook language with that cheery inbuilt racism. Of the British <laughs> the bloody everybody's, Poles. Everybody's no,
0: Polish at those days. Even UNRWA, yeah. when they were trying to decipher who were Poles, Russians, Ukrainians, Belarusians, Latvians, no, they couldn't decipher. All that. Poles. They're all Poles. That's it. Bye. Yep, they, we'll send you back to that's Poland. It.
2: So uh the the Durham's uh had a very strong regimental association that, that endured. And that's where they until they talk to me, people always say, We've had this before, Chris, we've talked about it uh about yeah. um uh, oh, they never talked to anybody, you know, they, they just talked amongst themselves. They, they did talk to us because they wanted to pay tribute to their achievements. They didn't consider themselves to be victims. They considered themselves to be highly trained soldiers who'd fought on behalf of their country in a vicious and unpleasant war against a very competent and dangerous enemy and they were proud of their achievements and they're right to be proud of those achievements and they also wanted to pay tribute to the men who died and this is a very sad point but uh, when you're killed if you're sort of on Monte Camino or uh, or going up Balignano spur if you probably think you're risking at best a couple of weeks or a month you're going to get killed or badly wounded sometime uh, but in actual fact if you survived then those men lost 70 years of life. They, you know, they had their 20 years before they were killed, but then they didn't have the chance, the ones who died, that 70 years. At the, so the people I interviewed very much wanted to reflect on that 70 years that their comrades lost, uh, to think about what they'd done and what sort of people they were. And they talk about, they talk about them singing songs. They talk about their escapades, their comedian, their, their, their uh, comedian-like behavior. They talk about all those things. Uh, and that's what they wanted to talk about as well as uh, the the defence of the battalion and, the, and and just that they weren't victims chris will be aware that first world war veterans also didn't like to be considered victims mm-hmm. um uh, it, it 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 soldiers don't like it and uh, that that is a sign of uh, wishy it's more wishy-washy people like us people who work in museums or authors or or, or historians that tend to think of victims the soldiers themselves do not think that way. And, uh, I, I think they're, you know, I, I, I think they're amazing. They're civilians one minute and they're fighting bloody German soldiers in Italy, sort of a year later. It's, uh, it's quite amazing. Ooh, you look abstracted there. She's, no, she's not falling asleep. She's, I thought she'd put, you ought to get those things that you put over your eyes with eyes on so that you can go to sleep behind <laughs> them.
0: Glasses. I need glasses.
2: Yeah, glasses with eyes on, and then you could just put them on, and we'd think you
1: were still awake. So, what's happening now? What's, any more questions, or are we done? Um, I, I was just going to. We can just briefly ask um, why infantry battalions often get overlooked. You know, like you, you said um, in the notes you sent me, that everyone loves the idea of the artillery blowing the crap out of everyone, or the RAF doing stuff. But the average infantry battalion doesn't get much.
2: much. If you look up 16th DLI in the official histories, it barely gets a mention. Um, uh, and, and, and if you look it up in what I would call popular histories, you know, the, the Monte, Monte, you know, the, of the Italian campaign, uh, say a history of the attacks on the Gothic line, they barely get a mention. Um, that's because there's so many of those battalions doing that graft, the hard graft uh and, and and tanks are sexier uh guns are sexier the r a f is sexier everybody's sexier than the infantry uh and that just it just attracts attention and is it it's not i'm not even sure it's a bad thing, but it's certainly not my thing and I have now done books on the the uh south on who are artillery I've done books on the fifty four Fars as i call them five and four five who were tanks. And I've done the, the foot sloggers on the 16th DLI. And I'll tell you, the infantry had it worst, worst of all by far. Uh, they had the hardest fighting. They had the, the worst conditions. They had to march most of the places, <laughs> an awful lot of marching up bloody hills, down hills, crossing rivers, um, constantly under fire, bloody Nebel wafers, bloody mortars, bloody German snipers, bloody Schmeisers, bloody machine guns. They had the lot artillery blasting them when they could. It was just a dreadful experience. And, uh, and it, it was it dreadful in the tanks? Yeah. Tank caught fire. Jesus wept. It's terrible. It, 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 you know, that just the smell, never mind anything else. Um, in the artillery, the biggest target for German artillery is our artillery, but nothing, nothing, uh, in the words of Prince and that woman. Nothing compares to, uh, to, 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 you, 16th DLR, you and your fellow infantry battalions. I also do not say the 16th are better than anybody else. I want to make that quite clear. They're just the battalion that we interviewed. Um, and, and I think they were wonderful.
0: All I wanted to sing there was Can't nothing hear, compares to you.
2: It's pretty just as well. I couldn't hear. <laughs> <laughs> I can't. I think sing. there must be some I think there must have been a quality control on the internet there because cause your voice at the start
1: of <laughs> your singing was blocked. Was it blocked for you as well, Chris? <laughs> no, no, no comment. But that might explain why my face is blocked. <laughs> 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 uh, but, foot so
2: sloggers, an infantry battalion at war, nineteen thirty nine forty five. They're really only from nineteen forty, but you know they, it goes with the series. And you can buy it pretty well anywhere, I suppose. Bad bookshops, good bookshops, second-hand bookshops, unfortunately. You know, the review copies you send out, hoping people will review it, and the bastards just sell it. <laughs> <You> <laughs> do that? They do do that? <laughs> oh. oh, yeah. Ask Chris. He gets review copies.
1: Yeah. Anyway. They're all on my desk.
2: Just to review it. Amazon reviews are incredibly helpful to sales. Absolutely.
1: <laughs> uh- and we'll we'll try and get on the on the History Hack bookshop as well, so uh, you you get more money, um, we get a little bit of money than uh, than Amazon. So lovely that History Hack,
2: and I apologise for anybody I've accidentally insulted. Really? Not really. We try. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <Better than that. laughs>
0: Peter, it has been great to have you on. You're welcome any time.
2: Thank you very much. You must get me and Gary on. That's it. That might be a bit more rowdy and undisciplined because we've got that book, uh, Laugh or Cry, and Laugh or Fly is coming out in July. So, whatever. <laughs> but it's been great fun. Lovely to talk to you. And it's so much nicer than that tall, geeky bloke and that funny looking bird, Alex. That's her name.
0: <laughs> <laughs> She's out recording in France right now. So, I promise you, she won't know that you mouth her. So,
2: excellent. Well, she's one of our faves, isn't she?
0: Amazing. Peter, great. Thanks so much.
2: Cheers. All the best.
0: Our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book. This is just a small taster. As a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org where you can find our guests' latest books, you can support them and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash historyhack or search for us in the shop section. Thank you so much for your continued support. We really appreciate our listeners and supporters, so make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book.